If you would turn to John chapter 21, we are finally getting to the end of our sermon series in John. And we end it this morning in this final chapter of John. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll notice in your order of worship, there is a sermon guide that has the scripture printed so that you can follow along. John chapter 21, verses 1 to 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. On top of our refrigerator sits an old silver pitcher. And it was a gift that was given to us at our wedding by my sister. And though my sister worked to polish up this old silver pitcher, there were still, when we got it, there were still spots of black on it where it was tarnished. The lack of perfection in the gift was purposeful 
because she accompanied the gift with a note that spoke to it. This silver pitcher had lasted for many, many years. Many years. It wasn't perfect, but it was beautiful. And so it sits there as a picture of our marriage, which is not perfect, but it's lasting and it's beautiful. And as I thought about it, this picture that sits on a refrigerator, it's, it's really a picture of the Christian life because the Christian life is not about perfection, at least not in this life. In glory, yes, but in this life, no. The Christian life is about restoration. It's about restoration, about how God takes broken sinners and restores them to beauty and to usefulness in his kingdom. The question is, how does he do that? How does he restore broken sinners into beauty, into usefulness in his kingdom? How does God restore you from sin and brokenness? To answer this, we're going to ask three questions. Who restores you? How are you restored? And what are you restored to? So let's start with who restores you. Peter's whole journey of denial and restoration was under the sovereign hand of Jesus. Jesus was sovereign over Peter's entire story from denial to restoration. Let's start with the denial. Jesus' sovereignty over even Peter's denial. Luke chapter 22, verses 30, 31 to 34 says this. Simon, Simon, speaking of Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, that was Jesus foretelling Peter's denial. What's interesting about those verses is that verse 31, the two instances of you are plural, which means it was Jesus saying to Peter, Satan has demanded to sift y'all, all you disciples, to sift you like wheat. Then verse 32, the four instances of you are sing singular, meaning that, that Jesus singles Peter out. And he says to Peter, Peter, listen, you are about to deny me. You are about to commit sin and, a de and denial on a level that you didn't think you were capable of. And we know this, but what did Peter say? Lord, I'll follow you to prison, to death. Jesus is saying, Peter, let me tell you what's about to happen. You're about to get shattered. You're about to commit sin and denial. It's gonna shock you, but your faith won't be destroyed. How do we know that? Because as Peter, or as Jesus speaks this sovereign prediction of Peter's denial to him, what does he say? When you have turned, strengthen your brothers. That Peter, when that rooster crowed, when he denied Jesus three times, the rooster crowed, it says that Peter wept bitterly. He was shocked over his sin. 
He was distraught over his sin. He was ruined by it. But his faith wasn't destroyed. Why? Because Jesus was sovereign over Peter's denial. He was sovereign over his sin. And Jesus is sovereign over your sin and brokenness. He's not the author of your sin or the author of your brokenness, but he's sovereign over it, which means he uses it for his purposes in your life and in his world. Martin Luther, who was a 16th century theologian, priest, and some others have said, it, have said this in some form or fashion, that God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Think about the difference between an, an excellent surgeon who performs an excellent surgery with a sharp scalpel. Think about a surgeon that performs that same excellent surgery with a dull scalpel. You and I, no offense, but you and I are dull scalpels in the hands of an excellent surgeon, which means that Jesus is sovereign over your sin and denial and brokenness. But he's also sovereign over your restoration. And we see this with, with Peter. As chapter 21 begins, Peter has already, and the other disciples, seen Jesus twice since his resurrection. Two appearances. And Jesus tells them in one of those, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. So we'd expect as chapter 21 begins, you might expect to see Peter and the other disciples talking about, okay, how are we gonna put together a plan now to take this gospel of Jesus Christ and tell the world? No, what's verse three say? Peter says, I'm going fishing. <laughs> I'm going fishing. Now, now commentators, they disagree over what's happening here. Some say, this is unthinkable. Jesus Christ in chapter 20, he appears to Peter twice, the risen Lord, and says, I'm sending you. It's unthinkable that Peter would turn back now to his previous occupation as a fisherman. Then there's others that say, no, 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 no. This isn't anywhere at all describing Peter abandoning his commission. Jesus has risen, but they still needed to eat. Now, I would say it's somewhere in between. Somewhere in between. What is clear here is that Peter has not been restored to that place of being all in on this spirit-empowered mission. What's clear here is that Peter, who denied Jesus three times, has seen the risen Lord twice, is unable to restore himself. He's unable to restore himself. He needs Jesus Christ to restore him. And that's where we see that Jesus is sovereign over Peter's restoration. And this is highlighted by two details. The first one is they go fishing. These are professional fishermen. They go fishing and catch nothing all night long. Jesus is on the shore and he says, hey, cast your, your net on the right side of the boat. And they cast their net and they pull in 153 fish. This is John 15 in living color. When Jesus says to his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then the second detail shows up when, when Peter jumps in the water. I love that. He just jumps in the water, leaves his friends to take the boat in. 
and the fish, right? They get to shore, though, and notice what happens when they get to shore, right? Look at verses 9 and 10. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it. And bread, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. What's interesting here is that Jesus didn't need them to catch fish to eat. When they got there, there was already fish laid out and cooked for them. There was a meal prepared for them. You see, Jesus was feeding them and he didn't need their help. Jesus was sovereign over this restoration specifically in Peter's life. Your restoration comes from sin and brokenness as you respond to Jesus who's sovereign over your restoration. Jesus is the one that restores you from your sin, your brokenness, your agony, pain, shame, all that that brings. Jesus restores you as you respond to him. Now, how do you respond to him? This gets to our second question, right? How are you restored? How are you restored? Notice what Jesus does with Peter. The first thing that Jesus does with Peter to restore him is to take him back to that great agony and that great pain, and that that great shame associated with his denial. He does this. There's two details in the story that that make this loud and clear. The the first is in verse 9 when it says that Jesus made a charcoal fire. Now, you may say that's just just an innocent detail. But, But remember, remember back to John 18, right before Jesus is going to the cross? Right before he's, when he gets arrested and he's on his way to the cross, and what does Peter do? He follows Jesus into that courtyard of the high priest. And it says, and that was the place where he would deny Jesus three times when the servant, servants would ask him if he knew Jesus. When he got into that courtyard, there's great detail to say what was, what was burning, a charcoal fire. So it was a cold night. And so once again here, John brings out this detail because Jesus is being very purposeful to take Peter back to that place. And so there's a charcoal fire burning. Peter is being reminded of his denial. And then the very obvious, right? The very obvious picture of this is when Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And those three times are paralleling Peter's denial, his threefold denial. Now, this seems counterintuitive. That Jesus, in his effort to restore Peter to be the rock on which the church is built, that Jesus' first move is to take him back to a place that Peter doesn't want to ever remember of agony and of pain and of shame. You say, it seems counterproductive. And Jesus, no, it's not. Because Jesus does it on purpose. Because the only way that Peter is truly going to be restored is if he faces that denial and faces that sin and deals with it so that he can know his forgiveness in Christ and be restored. Here's what we learn from this. If you don't deal with your sin, if you don't deal with your past sin and that brokenness and the shame, that that stuff that just, it sits deep in the recesses of your heart and all you want to do is just put the cover over it and never think about it 
and move on. That, that's how we tend to think about pressing on and being restored is just forget it didn't happen. Pretend it's not there. We move on. The problem is, is if you do that and you don't deal with it, it will darken your soul. It will hinder your spiritual walk. And Jesus, knowing that Peter was going to be the rock on which the church would be built, knew that he had to take Peter back so he could know he was forgiven and deal with it and now move on. And that's what Jesus does. Listen, David writes about this in Psalm 32. Listen to what David says in Psalm 32, verses three to five. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There have been plenty of studies that have confirmed what David writes in Psalm 32 that when there is sin and brokenness in your past, that maybe you've just swept under the carpet and moved on. Plenty of studies that show when you do that, that physically, emotionally, psychologically, it brings sickness. Sickness to even your very body. And so what Jesus is doing here is leading Peter back, and he leads you back. He does this. He leads you back to that place you never want to go. And notice that he leads you back. It may be a a conversation with a friend. It may be something you see on TV. It may be something that buzzes across social media. Whatever it is, it's the sovereign Lord Jesus that is taking you back to that place. And it is not to re-inflict guilt. It is not to re-inflict shame. It is not to show you how bad you are. Jesus takes you back there to heal you. He takes you back to that place to heal you because healing comes through exposure and facing it and dealing with it. If you participated in community Bible reading this past week, you would have read Hosea chapter six. And it's a beautiful chapter because it talks about God's people, about Israel, worshiping other gods, committing idolatry, while keeping this outward profession of religious activity. So they were deeply ingrained in idol worship and and running away from the Lord, but they kept the outward religious practices in place. So out here, it looked good. In here, it was a mess. And God called them out on it over and over, and they wouldn't listen. So he allowed, in his sovereignty, he allowed calamity and he allowed exile to come upon their lives. And the beauty of Hosea 6, chapter one is this. Listen to what it says. And this is God's people responding to the Lord. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck down and he will bind us up. You see, the Lord is about healing. And the way that he does that is if you have sin or brokenness in your past that you haven't dealt with, he is with with great kindness 
and great love is going to take you back so that you can deal with it and find healing. Because that's how you're healed, is when you face back into it. And so the consequences of your sin, there are consequences to sin. We all face it. The consequences of your sin, right, that have maybe done a job on your marriage or on your relationships or on your vocation, whatever it may be, those consequences are not intended to ruin you. They're a gracious move of the Lord to heal you, to bring forgiveness, right? So, so the Lord brings you back, right, so that you can embrace his healing, embrace his forgiveness, and move forward right? in victory. And that's what Jesus is doing here with Peter. He takes him back to his sin and brokenness, those, those painful, agonizing denials, so that Peter can embrace Jesus' healing and Jesus' forgiveness. That leads to the third question, what are you restored to? Jesus restores you. He restores you by bringing you back so that you can deal with your sin and confess it and be healed and embrace forgiveness. But then what does he restore you to? Look at verse 15. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Now, what does the more than these refer to? Well, it's referring to the other disciples. It's referring to the other disciples. Now, this is odd. You say, what, why is Jesus asking Peter this question? Because it seems like in the question that Jesus is encouraging Peter to take pride that he loves him more than the other disciples. Well, that's not it at all. You remember back before Jesus was arrested in those last moments with the disciples? Remember what he told his disciples? He said, listen, you all are gonna fall away. And what did Peter say? With great pride and a boastful heart, he said, Jesus, they may all fall away, but I never will. I'll go with you to death. You see, what, what Jesus is doing here is saying, Peter, do you really love me more than these? Do you remember what you said not too long ago? You see, it was Peter's trust of self. It was Peter's trust in himself that had brought him to such a great place of agony and pain in the first place. And so Jesus is asking Peter here to make his confession in front of all these other men, a humble confession, not a, I love you, Jesus, more than them, but a humble confession. And we see the humility of Peter's confession in a couple details in this passage. The interplay between Jesus and Peter is interesting because Jesus says twice, the first two times, Peter, do you love me? Jesus uses the word for love, agape, the Greek word agape. And that's the word that is the, it's the, the highest term for this unconditional love that's an act of the will, wholehearted devotion. That's the word that Jesus uses when he asks Peter. When Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you, Peter uses the word phileo, Greek word phileo for love, 
which is a word for love that describes a, a, the, the emotional or affectionate love. And what we see here is that Peter, absolutely a different man now, absolutely humbled, right, refuses to use that higher term that Jesus uses for love. Why? Because he's a humbled man. He's humbled. Right? He's, not this, he's not boasting pridefully of what he can do or even his ability to love Jesus. Right? He's responding very humbly to Jesus. And the other point that comes out here is notice in all three of Peter's responses. He says, Lord, you know I love you. The first two times, Lord, you know. And then the third time, what's he say? Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Peter's not even appealing to his own knowledge of his own heart. Peter says, Lord, I'm done appealing to my own self. And so I'm gonna appeal to your knowledge of my heart. So we see by the way he responds with the word he uses for love, the way he says, Jesus, I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust your knowledge of my heart, not my own, that this is a transformed man. This is a man who was prideful, who was arrogant, who was boasting in himself. It brought him to a great place of brokenness and shame. And now he's a transformed man. Why? Because Jesus restored him to a place of great humility. A man who humbly says, yes, Jesus, I love you. But you can almost sense the, the cracking in Peter's voice. Yes, I, I love you, but Lord, you know. I'm done doing this on my own. I'm appealing to your knowledge. I'm appealing to you. Jesus restores you. So how does Jesus restore you or what does he restore you to? He restores you to a love for himself, which produces and empowers a denial of self. That's what we see happening with Peter, is that Peter is, is, is restored to a love for Jesus and a, and a denial of self. And we see what Jesus says in verses 18 and 19. He says, Peter, you're gonna be crucified one day because of your love for me, right? That's the ultimate. Loss of life, willingness to die for Jesus, that's the ultimate picture of self-denial. That Peter's restored to a love for Christ. What's interesting to know here and the order of how it happens is that Jesus does not say to Peter, Peter, feed my lambs. Then, uh, do you love me? No, his first question is, Peter, do you love me? Jesus is making it so clear of the supreme importance for loving Christ first and foremost, which produces a denial of self before we love or care for others. Because here's what happens, is that if you set out to love and care for others without a supreme love for Christ, you actually hurt other people. You actually use other people under the disguise of love, but that's really self-love. Peter, do you love me? We have got to lock that down before I ever tell you to go feed my lambs because you will not be able to tend the sheep if you don't love me most. If you don't love me most, you can only love self and your feeding of the lambs will ultimately be love of self. Charles Spurgeon, he was a, a 19th century pastor, he tells this story of a king, a farmer, and a nobleman. Listen. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled everything in the land. One day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. 
He took it to his king and said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or will ever grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this and he said, my, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my Lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. And the point is this, that if Jesus is not the supreme focus that your love for Jesus is not supreme. The only other option is if your love for Jesus isn't supreme, your love for self will be supreme. And then any attempts to love other people, protect, care for other people, will be acts of love that are really disguises of, of self-love, where you really don't have the power to actually love someone else. There are 59 one another commandments in the New Testament. Do you realize that? 59 one another commands. And every one of those commands is ultimately about loving one another by what? Giving one another the word of Christ. That the way that we love each other, and there's 59 examples, the way that we love one another is giving one another the words of Jesus Christ, the word of God, the word of Christ, feeding people Jesus. And so it's simply said, you, you, can't, you can't give what you're not receiving, which is why paramount, supreme love for Christ is so critical. Because when love for Christ is supreme and Jesus is feeding you with, his, with himself and his words through his word, then you have the power and the capacity to love others by giving them his word. That's why everything we do puts the word of God so centrally in the middle. That's why we give you a, a community Bible reading plan to give you a way to, to, and to encourage you to regularly engage in the word of Christ. It's why our community groups, at the center of our community groups is the word of God that our groups aren't just fellowship over dinner, that at the center of our groups are the word of God so that we can receive the word of God, the word of Christ, and feed one another the word of Christ. It's the reason we have foundations on Sunday mornings, weekday studies, is because we believe that the words of Jesus Christ, that the word of Christ is what our soul needs. And when we have supreme love for Christ, he feeds us and then we feed one another. Because this command that Jesus gives to Peter, feed the lambs, tend the sheep, it certainly applies to elders. 
of the church of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But it also applies to every believer in the church of Jesus Christ because we're called to shepherd one another, to love one another. One of the most beautiful wildflowers in Alaska is called the fireweed. It actually, it's in Alaska. It's in the, the, the northern part of the northern hemisphere. So it's in Alaska. It's in Canada, parts of northern Europe. Beautiful, purple, pink blossoms that have an unbelievable amount of uses. It's fascinating. As a tea, fireweed is good for upset stomachs, coughs, and asthma. Applied in other ways, it treats bites, cuts, and eczema. The blossoms are even used, even used to make flavorful jelly or honey. It's this amazing wildflower called fireweed that, that brings good, that brings flourishing. Here's what's most amazing and most interesting about fireweed. The reason it's called that is it is the first wildflower, it's the first plant that blossoms after a fire. So fire, earth cools off, and out of the blackened earth comes beautiful fireweed. In fact, it was the first plant that, that popped and blossomed after the volcanic eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. Uh, it was the first plant that began to colonize the torched earth after the bombing of London in World War II. It's this amazing plant that, that brings about beauty right, out of ashes. And for that reason, it is a beautiful picture of the Christian life. It's a beautiful picture of restoration. Because when you feel like your sin and brokenness has left you in a, in a pile of ashes, blackened earth, when you blew it, when, whatever your scenario is, and you feel like I am a pile of ashes, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the Christian life is that Jesus Christ moves in to restore you so that out of those ashes, out of that darkness, comes a life of restoration where Jesus restores you to beauty out of ashes and he restores you to usefulness in the kingdom of God to serve him. And as restored people, that's the church. Let's make that very clear. The church is not a gathering of perfect people. It's not a gathering of people that even put on the face of perfection. It's the gathering of people that have sin and brokenness in their past, in their present. It's the gathering of people that out of the ashes of sin and brokenness, the Lord is restoring. And do you know what assures us of that? What assures us of that is his death and resurrection. Jesus Christ's Death and resurrection. In fact, Hosea chapter six, verse two says this, right? This is after the Lord says, we're, or, we're torn so we may be healed. Verse two, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. And then it goes on to say, yes, press on to know the Lord. The third day, that's resurrection. I, what additional evidence do we need? 
What additional evidence do we need that God is for us and that the consequences of our sin are not there to destroy us, but rather to bring us to the place of seeing what the Lord has forgiven, what the Lord has done to restore us through his death and resurrection. And it's out of that healing of the death and resurrection of Christ that he paid for he paid the penalty for that very sin that its consequences has left you broken and hurting. That very sin he paid for and he brings you back to it so that you would see, I am forgiven. My life has been a pile of ashes because, because of it. But the Lord, because of his death and resurrection, is resurrecting my life <laughs> to beauty and for usefulness in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, would you make us a family, a congregation that understands restoration, that you're a God that's for us, that you're a God that longs to heal. And the evidence of that is you putting your own son, Jesus Christ, on the cross to suffer for us. That Jesus on the cross would be reduced to ashes so that when he rose from the dead, that healing and renewal and restoration is what we receive. Father, I specifically pray for those in this room that have sin and brokenness in their past, maybe sin and brokenness that shocked them, that they never thought they were capable of, and that maybe have never dealt with it, maybe have chosen to try to forget it. Oh, Jesus, would you be so tender to lead them back to that and remind them that you've paid for it and that you're about healing and that you desire to restore them to beauty because you love them. Father, would we, would we be a community of people who live as restored people, receiving your word and giving it to one another, the precious, sweet words of the gospel that take broken sinners and restore them unto beauty and purpose. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.